Autism is a condition that affects a person's ability to interact socially and relate to the world around them. The degree to which a person is affected ranges across a wide spectrum, from severe difficulties in communicating to mild symptoms. Mia Languth, whom I speak with this week, works part-time as a carer for Chris, a 24-year-old man with autism. She became a disability support worker almost by chance. She'd just moved to Australia to start a Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Queensland and was looking for jobs that were flexible. She found an ad online searching for someone for 7 to 10 hours per week to do projects like drawing, painting, handwriting and numbers. She applied and five years later is still working with Chris. It's a job that has shaped the direction of her career. So Chris is 24 I would say, if you ever ask him what he loves, he loves trains, planes, buses, anything kind of with an engine and any kind of automobile, Um, loves maths, physics, astroscience, all that kind of stuff. He loves thinking. He loves thinking about thinking. Uh, He loves having conversations about, well, lately not so much loves having conversations, but has always kind of enjoyed having conversations about science and all that kind of stuff. He's got a wicked sense of humour. So we use facilitated communication to um, talk. And what facilitated communication is, is where I often use the iPad to type out, hi, Chris, how are you doing today? Um, how are you feeling? And he, I will then help support his hand, kind of more, kind of both as a physical support, but also as emotional support. And then he'll type out his answers, for example. So um, that's what I mean when I say he's got a fantastic sense of humor is that, um, you know, we can talk for hours on the iPad. Day-to-day things with Chris have definitely altered throughout the years. Like when I first started, it started very much as creative projects, painting, drawing, handwriting. Um, And I just kind of would go for three or four hours, maybe two, three days a week in the afternoons after university, um, just to kind of hang out with him and socialize with him. These days, he's not so interested in doing that kind of thing anymore. He's um, Well, he was 19 when I started working with him and he's 24 now some of the goals of change that we are trying to achieve. So these days we're trying to do a lot more stuff to kind of um, improve his independence. So I work Sundays and Mondays around uh, work here at QBI. And on Sundays we, we kind of hang out and watch TV for three hours. We watch Stranger Things. So we're watching um, all sorts of things on Netflix and Stan, like Breaking Bad and all those kind of things. Anything that has like a sci-fi or kind of like scientific kind of thing to it. And um, on Mondays, what we do is we go and we take the bus and train into Brisbane and we kind of ride around all day and have lunch and all that kind of thing. So um, definitely changes week on week and try and build different goals for you know each year, each kind of every couple of months for things we want to work on. So um, yeah, it kind of changes. But he's got also got two other carers he works with and they kind of all do different things. So they might take him to the beach or like museum or kind of or a park or kind of that kind of stuff. I would say one of the, I don't know if I should talk about this, but I would say that one of the most surprising things that happened is um, after the first six months of working with him, I went back to England for a month to see my family and I came back to work with him. Um, I'd always planned to and he knew I was coming back, um, but I think he was quite surprised when I actually did turn up to work um, following my month holiday. And... um, I think he didn't quite know how to show me how excited he was to see me in the in the months that followed. I don't know if they're connected. We we kind of think they are. But, you know, um, we started talking a lot about sex and sex education. Um, as a 21-year-old um, uni student, I just started my degree and I was um, giving, I, I was kind of going through sex education with Chris, who's only two years younger than me. Um, and that's something I never thought I'd 
have to do or at least maybe like with my children when I'm you know another whenever that happens in like 20 years yeah that was that was one of the biggest surprises I've had to go through but um it was one of those fantastic things as well though because anything he was saying around sex and kind of romance and it was okay it actually kind of came out of friendship and um not really kind of understanding how to put different people into different friendship groups and uh what romantic feelings are and all that kind of stuff and it was more him just kind of asking, you know, at the same time he's also asking about drinking games and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he's just a 19-year-old, 20-year-old guy who lives at home with his parents, doesn't get to socialise outside of the three of us who work with him. And I think he was just generally interested in kind of like teen adult life. And so the fact that sex came up was kind of very normal and part of that. Is it difficult for him, as you said, as a you know a man entering early adulthood, mm-hmm. to be going through what so many other young men go through, but not having a social support network around him? I definitely think so. I think that Chris is quite aware sometimes of things that he's kind of maybe necessarily missed out on. I remember for a while there we were talking about play fighting, and he kind of was like, "I kind of because he was working with me and two other girls at the time. He now works with me and two other guys." But, um, you know, and kind of wanting to do that whole like play fighting and just kind of like um, teasing and, you know, like with the drinking games and all that kind of stuff. I def- it's a, it was kind of amazing how much he knew that he was missing out on. I, so I, I asked his mum about it because I kind of couldn't, cause some of the stuff he was saying, I just kind of thought, well, where, you know, where are you getting these ideas from? But, you know, he did go to a special needs school um, up until the age of 16. And apparently Chris used to sit under the tables when all the older kids were having conversations about sex and like, I don't know, maybe not drugs, but drinking and all this kind of stuff. And um, apparently that's where he got a lot of his ideas about. Kind of amazing to me because I can totally imagine it, imagine a young Chris doing that. But um, but then just kind of rehashing it, you know, years later and asking me all about these different things. What have been some challenges for you or for him in working with him over these past five years? Uh, one of the things I'm really struggling with, for example, at the moment, this might sound a little selfish, but trying to help someone who's not really interested in helping themselves. Chris was it was 19 when I started working with him. And when I was interviewed, his mother was talking about how he had just graduated high school a couple of years before. And he graduated high school and he kind of got depression because he realized that he was an intelligent young man who couldn't go to university and couldn't study all these things he was really excited about because of his physical and mental disabilities and the way it impacts on his daily life. And so... When I first started working with him, the goals were kind of much more basic, kind of more to kind of get him doing creative projects and stuff. And I was very um, motivated in that. And then it was about um, trying to build his independence. And, you know, like I take him on the bus, and I try and get him to, for example, try and get him to order his own lemonade and stuff. And when we're out and just kind of like trying to help him function more in, in, in life and society. But what I struggle with most, I would say at the moment, is having worked with him for five years and he's he's 24 now. He doesn't have goals. You know, he I think it partly comes down to the fact that he kind of doesn't know what he can do to know kind of like what he should maybe try and aim to do. But it's quite difficult sometimes for me, and this might sound very selfish, but to work with to try and help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. I'm really at the moment trying to work on his communication because like I said, he we use facil- facilitated communication to talk on the iPad, but lately he's not interested in talking on the iPad. So it means we have to revert to like yes, no answers. And for someone who's so intelligent, I find it very difficult to 
work with someone who's just not trying to help themselves and not trying to, you know, because I want to be able to go out with him into Brisbane, for example, and and him to say, I want to go to the art gallery. And then we just go to the art gallery. Whereas he gets very upset. He'll start pointing in the direction of the art gallery, expecting me to know what he wants. And he, you know, he gets very, very upset. And I just say, just write it down and we can do it. You know, if you say, I want to go here, I want to go get a lemonade or I want to go on the train again or whatever. Um, But he doesn't want to communicate at the moment. And we've had four years of communicating and now I'm talking to someone who doesn't want to talk to me back. And I, I struggle with that because I think a lot of people think that working with people with autism, you know, you have the diagnosis when they're young, perhaps, and then a lot of the behavioral therapy or a lot of the work with doctors and psychologists. And as they kind of go through school, like they potentially, they everyone thinks they kind of get better. But I wouldn't say that those things naturally progress that way. And like things that weren't pro- were problems when I started working with Chris aren't problems anymore but then there's all these new problems and it doesn't just kind of keep getting better and easier there's definitely new things that pop up all the time and so I find that quite challenging to kind of you almost feel like you're getting somewhere and then um, something else just pops up. It must be really frustrating for Chris particularly because he's thinking at a rate much faster than he can yeah. express himself and he's you know so intelligent he's got a lot of interesting things and important you know important things he wants to say he just can't communicate in an easy simple way which is why I try and get him to communicate as much as possible with the iPad but he finds it very stressful and it's just too slow for him sometimes he wants to be able to have a quick conversation you know a kind of a dynamic conversation in the way that you know that we are and it's just so frustrating and if I ask him the wrong questions and he kind of doesn't he can't respond in maybe in the way he wants to respond and or if I give him too many options or too little options or the wrong thing it's just um this it's it's very hard and frustrating for him what would be your hope for Chris then in the future I mean it obviously must be really challenging to feel like in some areas you may have progressed with him but in other areas that it you're feeling like you'd almost have taken a step back together what do you see or hope for the future for him? It's difficult because I think I kind of, I sometimes agree with Chris in the sense that I don't know what all his options are for things he wants to pursue. But because of his anxiety and depression that comes along with his autism, which is very common in adults with autism to have, you know, anxiety and depressions as like we do as adults. Um, but it's kind of more amplified in his disorder. And I kind of don't know what his options you know I, I kind of have an eye you know we have ideas like we we sign him up to like open university and and studying but at the moment he's he's not interested in pursuing what his potential future might be um but your question was is what I'm what am I hopeful for in the future with Chris I would really like to get Chris to a place where he feels that he can focus on a goal or goals that he's interested in I'd also really like to see Chris in a so he lives currently lives at home with his parents and I'd really like to see Chris in a group home facility you know like with you know maybe one or one or two other people either with um, autism or different kind of disorders that and you know people he gets along with because I think that I think his home life would be much more calm and relaxing because he's a 24-year-old guy living with his mum and dad and he just wants space and time away from them. And even if it wasn't just full-time, if it was like five days and weekends off or whatever, he, he's he got fantastic parents, but I think he just kind of wants space and time and doesn't really want to hang out with them all the time. And I, I'd like to see him in a kind of 
a house that he has people he could get along with and carers like me and other pe- and the other two that work with him who are there um, socialising with him and then uh, that's what I'd really like to see. So, I'd, I'd, yeah. Can you talk to us about what autism is and what people with autism experience? So autism is a spectrum of disorders. At the lower end of the spectrum, you'd have things like ADHD, ADD, moving up to individuals who are perhaps higher functioning, so they're more independent, but they still have some of those social and communication deficits, to people who have perhaps a lower cognitive ability and more social and communication problems. And then you kind of go all the way up to, so you have kind of typical and atypical autism. And then you might go to the end of the spectrum where you have like pervasive PDD and Rett syndrome, the the end where you're kind of combining this all with kind of severe motor disabilities as well. How did the work that you're doing with Chris lead to where you are now at QBI? A couple of years ago when I decided in my third year of uni that I wanted to study, um, wanted to do an honours project, it kind of felt like the most natural answer to me that I would study autism um, from my work with Chris. For lots of reasons, I, d- I, I really wanted to understand more about the disorder. I wanted to better understand some of the causes, some of the different symptoms, how they manifest in different people, you know, because autism is a real spectrum of disorders and people with different levels of communication, social interaction and um, all those kind of things and different levels of you know, cognitive ability. Having worked with someone with autism, I just really wanted to learn more about it. And so um, I approached Associate Professor Tom Byrne here at Queensland Brain Institute to do an honours project. He was looking at, um, he was interested in autism. So I, I had him as a lecturer in third year subject. So I, I heard him talk and he, you know, he spoke about autism and that was kind of my buzzword. So I, I got in contact with him and um, he was really interested in doing uh, vitamin D deficiency and as a potential um, risk factor for autism. And so I, I yeah, I started a honors, year-long honours project with him. Tell us more about your research with Associate Professor Tom Byrne and, and the work he's doing on vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency has been associated with autism, schizophrenia, a number of different mental health disorders through a lot of epidemiological studies. And I told Tom that I was interested in doing autism and he had said a lot of interesting studies come out with um, schizophrenia and they were kind of looking at different disorders and diseases that it might be associated with. So in, in mouse models, what we did is we were interested to see the effect of vitamin D deficiency during gestation, so during pregnancy, and the effect it had subsequently had on the behaviour of offspring. So we had um, different mouse models related to autism that we looked at and we put them on vitamin D deficient or normal diets and we were interested to see how it would affect core symptoms related to autism. So how it would affect communication, social interaction, locomotion, hyperactivity, repetitive behaviours in mice, that's kind of like grooming and exploration and um, also cognition. So we looked at that as well. Autism spectrum disorders are thought to be caused by many different environmental and genetic risk factors and we looked at vitamin d deficiency as a potential risk factor for autism there are thought to be many different things that cause autism and epidemiological studies suggested that low vitamin d in pregnant mothers there was an association with an increased risk of autism Um, there's been studies linking 
vitamin D deficiency in schizophrenia and autism. And we wanted to, in a more controlled environment, use mouse models to understand how vitamin D deficiency might impact on behaviours related to autism. What would be your future goals for autism research as a whole? Um, So what I'm really interested in is trying to look at novel therapies and new ways of treating the secondary symptoms of autism in adults. So things like anxiety, depression, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, epilepsy, a lot of these kind of disorders that adults with autism experience at increased rates to, you know, typically developing adults. It's difficult because it's not the core symptoms of autism. It's looking at the things outside of that. How can we better treat these disorders in adults with autism, Uh, whether that be with behavioural therapy, uh, pharmacologically or other, you know, I want to look at ways of improving overall quality of life for adults with autism. How do you think your relationship with Chris has either changed over the past five years or affected the way that you are? It's interesting. So the first couple, I would say almost six months of working with Chris, it was all about establishing a rapport, trust, getting him to talk, you know, use the iPad to talk to me because that that's something that does take three, four months, if not longer. You know, some some people have worked with Chris and never used it and they've worked with him, for, you know, for a year or two. Yeah, so when we first started working together, you know, uh, we were kind of getting to know each other and we were doing a lot of painting, drawing, handwriting practice. But then it kind of came to light that he was wanted to work on being more independent, perhaps moving out of home. I think having a less of a reliance on his mother and his family um, as support networks. Yeah, so it's really it really has changed and it's really nice for me because in the last, I'd say, six months, uh, we started going out on trips together again after what it must be like a year and a half break. In addition to being his carer, would you say that there's a level of friendship there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I would definitely consider me and Chris um, good friends. And I, I do sometimes actually struggle with the idea of it, though, because I do get paid to hang out with him. And I know that might sound weird, but be- I do consider him a good friend. And then sometimes I think to myself, am I really that good a friend, though, if I, you know, paid to hang out with him? But, I, you know, there's definitely um, times when I've met up with him when he's with the other carers out and about. And and it's not like I go write that up in the book. You know, I just I um, but I have I do sometimes um, battle with that. But I would say that uh, we both do see each other as as friends and um, we see that part of it because. When I when I do have problem with it, I just remember that the reason is is also because of the other basic care needs and stuff, and that I'm not necessarily being paid to be his friend. I'm being paid to be his support worker, and that friendship kind of just is a as an added bonus to that. There's there's a high likelihood that in the future you might not always be his yes. disability support worker. Do you ever worry about that? I do. I definitely think that I will miss him and I, I will miss um, his family when that day eventually comes. But I think that we're all kind of ready for it. I know that might sound strange, but um, we have been together for for five years working uh, with him and his family. You know, we've both changed a lot in that time. I think he's also quite excited for me to move on. And if I, I both his and his mum is, they think it's fantastic that I'm doing autism research and that, that might take me outside of Brisbane but I think that she, I think we're all quite excited about it I think she's she thinks it's fantastic that she, she gets, says to me that she's got one you know that, that, that she's managed to turn someone into in you know, kind of help autism in a different in a different and better way you know I think she sees it as a win and uh, which is fantastic what would you say to people listening who are affected by autism in some way I think that um it's very interesting. I talk to a lot of people about what I do because I'm passionate about what I do. 
both my research and my work with Chris. And I do meet a lot of people who who either work with people with disabilities or people who um, are in research or just people who have a sibling or they've got a cousin. And, that you know, people often enjoy telling me their, you know, their own stories. You know, when I'm telling my stories of Chris, they tell their stories of, you know, their sibling, cousin or friend, sister, a friend's brother or sister kind of thing. I would say autism as a disorder is at times incredibly tough to deal with. But I would say that it's also incredibly rewarding. You know, some of the conversations I have with Chris are, you know, absolutely fantastic and beautiful. And you kind of just don't know how it ever came to be. And you could realize you could never have that kind of conversation with anyone else. And and while it is incredibly challenging, you know, sometimes I remember just as an example, like, you know, we were out all day and we had a, a bit of a stressful trip on the trains and buses. And on the bus back, you know, he just kind of, he was kind of relaxed and he just slumped and put his head on my shoulder. That kind of thing to me, that kind of show, a small show of friendship and, you know, I guess, like, I don't want to, well, yeah, love um, is, I think, I feel like I see a small snippet of what families must experience. Life is different when you know, when you grow up or you, um, with a um, sibling or child with autism. But when you have those kind of beautiful moments of just pure love or pure friendship or appreciation um, I think there's, there's a huge amount of trust that needs to be placed in people like me to work with children with autism or any disability you know one of the things I enjoy most about my job with Chris is that especially when things aren't going well with him and he's being very stressful is I realize that I'm giving his parents and his mum a break you know and I really think that that's really important because um, as stressed out as I might be they you know they they deal with this um, every day. What effect do you hope that you've had on Chris? What impact on his life do you hope you've had? I've worked with Chris longer than any of his previous carers have worked with him. And I think that that kind of stability is really important. Sometimes I kind of can't believe he's kept me around so long. And I've definitely asked him periodically throughout the last few years, do you still want to work with me? You know, sometimes, and my friends find this very funny, you know, I'll go there on a Sunday and I'll have had breakfast, you know, at home and then I'll have to go to work on Sundays for a couple of hours and um, I'll turn up and he'll just tell me to leave for three hours. He just points at the door because he doesn't, he doesn't say it out loud. He just points at the door. And I said to him once, I said, Chris, do you still want me to work with you? Because every time I come, you just tell me to leave for, for, you know, for the first hour, you're just saying, like, can you go? And I'll sometimes get his iPad out and he's just like, I want you to go. And I'll just say, <laughs> and I'll just say, do you still want me to work with you? He's like, yes, just not today. And I'm like, you say this every week. <laughs> but, um, you know, he has, I did get his mum to talk. I have got his mum to talk to him about it in the past and said, you know, can you just check with, just check with Chris and... Am I still, you know, because he works with two other guys, I'm saying, is it still what he wants and to work with me or is he just, you know, doing it because I'm still here kind of thing? You know, and he does say fantastically, love, he says lovely things, you know. I, I remember the last time um, he, she asked him, he said, um, Mia is someone I truly always want to know. I think she is uh, very intelligent and funny, sometimes st- stupid, <laughs> and um, someone I always hope I truly know and want to be you know like in the the sense that I work in science and he loves science and so that was really beautiful because I definitely was kind of like I think we're both over this now but no he definitely he does still like to work with me 
That was QBI's Mia Langworth speaking about autism research and her experience working as a disability support worker for Chris. If you'd like to find out more about autism work at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Donna Liu and our podcast was produced by Jessica McGaw. We're on Facebook and Twitter and if you like what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.